call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 113 of Call It Friends of the podcast, where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Anna Katirin, watched two classic films from American auteur directors, 1981's Blowout by Brian De Palma and 1976's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie by John Cassavetes. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. At the time of recording, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie's on YouTube. I stuck the link in the show notes. You can find us on Instagram at Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. I know I said it the last time. It's meant to be a callback. God damn it, Andy. He does, it doesn't work if it's just... That's... How come you like Mike Rice's callbacks, but you never like mine? Well, because he calls me back. He doesn't. I hope he's okay. I hope he's he's doing well. (laughs) I'm sure he's doing well. (laughs) I really hope he's doing well. Yeah, yeah. I bet he is. Good. I bet he is doing well. Good. Are you doing well? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I had a bit more time this week. It was nice to watch two good films. And also, I I got to do quite a lot of research. It is one of those weeks, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those weeks where the films were good. It's like and they this, were made oh, by this good is people. the exact reason why we do the podcast. Made by auteurs. I was surprised to find out that auteurs were able to make films. Yeah, man. Auteurs are able to make films. I thought they were just like creature. I thought they were just animals that swim around on their back. Two? Break clams on their bellies. Auteurs of, I would argue, equal talent. From and that's a lot of talent from complete opposite ends of the storytelling spectrum. By the way, I don't know if you noticed the clear link between the films Blowout and Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Uh, wow. Can't think of one off the top of my head. Go for it. Both films featured characters who experienced blowouts while driving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's why these films... That's why ChatGPT hooked them up. Yeah, that's why they're very, very clearly linked. They're almost the same film. And actually, to look at the way both films approach the incident is just so emblematic of the filmmakers behind the story. <laughs> no? Like, the, the one in Chinese Bookie, which we'll get to, is just... It's a wild few minutes on film, that. Yeah, what, running... Back just and how forth did they shoot that? <laughs> Apart from literally making that happen. Yeah. Good it's God, a it's dangerous. Uh, I suppose we talk Blowout first, do we? Yeah, why not? Mr. Brian De Palma's 1981 film Blowout. My new favorite Brian De Palma movie, I would say. That's interesting. I am not such a huge fan. Sorry. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, okay, I get it. It's about filmmaking. It's very well shot. I like... The camera movements, I like what he's doing, I get it, but the mystery and the plot, I just don't really care about, and that, and also like Nancy Nancy Allen's performance, John Travolta a little bit to to an extent. You don't like Johnny Trav's in it? From time to time he's okay, but other times he just, I don't think he's really got a handle on acting at this point. See, I think this is exactly the film that Tarantino was probably drawing on when he put him in Pulp Fiction. This is one of his favorite films of all time. I know, yeah, 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 he loves this. And it is, no, no, he said specifically that's why he cast Travolta for... uh, For his performance in Blowout. Yeah. Yeah, because I do actually think he's very cool, quite passionate in it. And honestly, Nancy uh, Allen was really annoying me. Yeah. Um, 
until I like it got to the last few minutes and I didn't want her to die. And one thing that I I I, th- I feel the the casting of Sipowitz helped this massively. Dense ju- France. Yeah, you just kind of get this picture of her as a. I made the unfortunate crack at her there, the dumb fatale, because she's dumb as all hell in this. Every she like, is. Yeah, yeah, but she's also. I mean, whatever. Brian De Palma, bit of a perv, it would seem, but. Yeah, but this, this she, is his wife. This is, they were, they were married at, the at this point. No, they, no, no, but I don't mean in that but way. But this was also the third film that they made together. That's he, right, yeah. He didn't want to cast Nancy Allen. I didn't know that. Well, you've done your research. Right, so I watched the uh, Brian De Palma documentary, the 2015 film, uh, which was made by Jake Paltrow and Noah Bombay. Which I've been meaning to watch and since it's great. it came out. It's really, really good. It's just, uh, it's so simple. It's just a conversation. We don't see any of the questions. We just see his answers, but like, you know, typical doc style. Yeah. But it's literally, there's very little about about him and about growing up. There's a little bit of bio at the start. And then it's just film by film all the way through his career. Wow, so it starts off with the arty stuff. In it the starts 60s off and... with like Robert De Niro and a bunch of stuff in the sixties. Yeah, it starts yeah, that's off right. him at film school. He he was at film school with like all the boys. He's one yeah, of the brats. yeah yeah. Well yeah, so he I mean he was big friends with like Lucas Spielberg, Lucas Spielberg and all those guys. Scorsese, yeah yeah yeah. yeah all, all those guys. So there's sure, a bit he wrote of that. the opening crawl to Star Wars. Did, Did you know he? that? No. For yeah. some reason, I thought that was someone else. He uh, basically. George Lucas had them all around to his house and um, to show them what he had been burning his career away on. And Brian De Palma was one of the more vocal ones saying, Jesus, this is a bunch of shit. And uh, he felt slightly bad for it. And particularly one of the things he said was a bunch of shit was the opening crawl, which was poorly written, as George Lucas was one to be responsible for, was done on pretty much toilet paper. And so De Palma, feeling bad for his lambasting of George Lucas, this is all in the Star Wars doc, contributed the opening crawl and the opening crawl is great actually like it's it's good yeah writing. the first one yeah, yeah it gets exactly. a bit ropey when you get to the prequels <laughs> somehow <laughs> Palpatine returned. you still haven't seen number nine Oof, no i haven't but i've heard one. of that yeah, i've yeah, heard yeah. of that uh, opening crawl i'm not but a anyway in, in this doc yeah so he just he goes through his films one by one and just covers each one for about three to five minutes and then by the time you reach snake eyes you're right you're like okay i I didn't really pay much attention to the last 15 minutes because post Snake Eyes, he's like, Mission to Mars was shite. Femme Fatale was shite. Redacted. Yeah, we try, blah, 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 blah. No, I mean, he still thought they were okay, but he was like, Mission Impossible was the end for him. That was success. That was like a financial success. It's it was the biggest financial success. Yeah, and it was like he 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 did what he wanted to do. And it's very and it much a Pama picture as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about it's and it sets the it sets the tone for the future films of like overreaching we, for yeah, uh, figure more out, commercial like, success. Yeah, or like figuring out shots. We want it to look good or we want he was the person who said, you know, you don't need to film this all in the US. You can go around the world, you can go where you want. So he put things into motion, which have, you know, turned out that that's what future films have followed that kind of similar blueprint. Um, But yeah, so like up until that, there's really interesting in the 70s, 80s. 90s to like 96 or whatever oh, and I bet snake eyes i have you seen the 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 first ending to snake eyes that he shot no because the actual ending is terrible so See, but i like snake eyes i like yeah. most of the film until the ending i rewatched it not that long ago and it's pretty bad so the original ending well I, I mean it's fine i it's one again where like the artistry of the shots is very interesting but the plot the the, the last time i watched it i remember just thinking like 
Eh, well, I so feel great. the plot culminates on the ending. That's what I would say. Okay, it's like when so, they're all trying to tie it together. I'm like, this is fucking lame sauce. Sp- spoilers for the the other ending that he shot. A giant tidal wave, a giant tsunami washes everything away. It crashes down. It was basically all about like down in AC. The the it, fact that it was like washing away that washing away the dirt, washing away all the shit. Basically, that was the concept. Wow. It's, but it's like a fucking a huge tidal wave. And the, have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see it in the dock. And they did it with CGI, surely. I guess, but it looks it looks decent. And this was this film was made in ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it looks okay. People were capable of good effects in the nineties. Yeah, it ju- it's just they didn't make the film the focus. They didn't make the effects the focus of the film. Mm-hmm. So they were able to get away with more things. The one thing I'll say about Brian De Palma is he certainly doesn't lack confidence in his vision or his skills. Like he's very vocal about. He's he tells this anecdote about one teacher he had at like film school who he made films with, and they were blocking a scene, and he realized like I know more than my teacher. Like, I have better film skills at this. He was, like, in his early 20s. He's hyper-confident in himself. His filmmaking skills just scream hype. He's almost like, you know the trope in rap lyrics to go on about how great you are? That's how he kind of uh, flaunts his his skills. Like, I mean, when Travolta is clinging a dead Nancy Allen to his chest as the fireworks go off above their head at the end of Blowout, you're like, it's it's affecting in a way, but then in another way, you're just stepping back going, that is... Fairly well constructed. I'm but looking in your the, eyes going... This, but this is how I like feel it. by Blur. I'm like, yeah, I appreciate the technical skill that went into it. Especially that whole ending scene. And of course, like, Brian De Palma loves a train station. He loves he a, train. Love a train he station. He loves a train station. Did you not Carlito's feel like way film untouchable. Was just set piece to set piece to set piece? Yeah, they were all but good. then... But that's fine. I can accept it scene by scene and say this looks good, but the overarching care. plot... Okay, so... Should we should we go into plot now? Yeah, I mean, before hand, just because you've shat on it a tiny bit, I would just say as a, a repeat, I'm not shitting on it. I'm just saying that fair. like I don't you don't care agree about me. the plot. So like I would say, yeah, probably my new favorite Brenda Palmer film. I think it's intertextual without being overbearing. Like it's about the Kennedy assassination and Watergate. He um, was a he was a huge JFK guy. Yeah, yeah. Until he read he read something in one of the JFK books which suggested that the entry and exit wounds had been switched at the hospital. And when he read that he was like, Oh wait, this is all a bunch of bullshit. Like no. that was the thing that took him away from being like a kind of truther for well, I'd say this was probably after blowout then. I don't know when it was. This was just this is I all heard. very grassy knoll sort of stuff. But the think about all the I mean, there's this in Watergate and everything was going on. Also, I mean the films that this kind of is in playing in this similar ballpark to is, you know, the conversation, the Alan J. So much better than the conversation. Alan J. Pakula Pakula, yeah. Trilogy. Yeah. I felt it's also deliriously so like more than the conversation. I prefer the conversation. Yeah, I would prefer this. But um, Gene Hackman has intercourse, inter- intertextual <laughs> intercourse with a lady. Through raincoat. Yeah, in his raincoat. Why didn't? Why don't you? Like I, qu- that? I do quite like the conversation. I like this more. I think this is very entertaining, without uh, dumbing itself down ever, except for Nancy Allen, who does that quite a bit. But when she agrees to meet John Lithgow in the train station. And John so Travolta stupid. agrees that she should go so stupid. with the tapes. That is one moment that was a problem for me in the movie, I have to say. I know he's like he's doing a Hitchcock thing. He's just 
getting your characters to the next set piece. Yeah, he was Let's a huge, it. huge, huge Hitchcock fan. That's his biggest influence. Everything is set piece. And in my opinion, they're all great. But yeah, let's rock into the plot. Go on. I'll interrupt you at will, by the way. While in post-production on the low-budget slasher film Co-Ed Frenzy... Oh, can we talk about that a second? Yeah. What an intro. So that was... Um, they I mean, got, it's a deliberate nod to Halloween, surely. That was the idea. They got Garrett Brown, who is the creator of the Steadicam. He, just a few years before this, created the Steadicam. For The he, Shining. No, he first used it on a Hal Ashby film, I think, in 1975. Then he used it in Rocky. The Shining, he he came off The Shining and then did Blowout. So he'd used it on The Shining and I've then went straight into Blowout. So they got he they they hired Garrett Brown to uh, and the idea was that he was supposed to he'd just been working with um, Stanley Kubrick and he was now being told to basically do absolute shite. He was being told to break all the rules mm. and was just kind of like making fun. He, well, I don't like anybody mocking Halloween because I think Halloween is great. I thought this was like a great pervy kind of nod to Halloween. It's like, you know, all the Brian De Palma tropes are there of just voyeurism and, you know, probably over overtly explicit 70s slash 80s female nudity, <laughs> just tits bouncing around the place and stuff. Um, I listened to a bit of Garrett Brown talking about it. I don't think he's a huge fan of Halloween, of how that shot. The, the intro is what he's referring to. Yeah, I assume so. I mean, talking about like the sort of not steady cam, but like, yeah, carrying a ca- walking with a camera scenes i get how he would have that douchey opinion having worked with a douche like kubrick and i love kubrick but i mean he was i'm sure if we knew him we would think he was a dickhead yeah we'll, we'll get to kubrick uh later when we talk about old uh old tc tc uh, yeah we'll be getting back to TC. i haven't gotten any more oh TC man i got ca- fucking so much i oh, I, was, I got so much timothy carey stuff man oh, he was, shit. i didn't even look into him because i thought we'd uncover but yeah you listen to the anyway yeah, yeah all right yeah. Yeah, I love uh, I love Halloween. I love the intro. I love the final reveal that he's the kid. I think uh, what's his chops, Gareth? Gary, Gary Brown. Gary Brown, by the way, he invented the Steadicam. He invented Skycam. The stuff that they think they have in like stadiums, the huh. like up There's in the, the eye in the sky in, type in thing. Yeah, he he invented all these different cameras. Hmm. And like, yeah, everyone uses all that yep. shit these days. Um, anyway, the, yeah, in the middle, of the, straight after that, then uh, the credits come up and there's a very odd credit for Nancy Allen's costumes. I'm wondering, do you have anything on that? No, what was that? One was person that? in particular gets credited with Nancy Allen's costumes. Who was it? Uh, and something or other. Well, that's good. That's nice. What film was it? Maybe Sisters or something? I can't remember which Brian De Palma film it was. One of the early ones, Sissy Spacek is the is oh, the person Carrie. who did, but she did costumes on a previous film, and then he cast oh, her in away. Carrie. This is all in the documentary. Spoilers for the uh, Brian De Palma <laughs> doc. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You have I'm to watch it. To I, I'll stop telling stories from it because, but that, that's how they cast. Well, uh, give facts, Sis- not stories. Because okay, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, how I they like ended up that. casting Sissy Spacek in uh, Carrie. So anyway. Uh, I'll go back to the start. While in post-production on the low-budget slasher film Coed Frenzy, Philadelphia sound technician Jack Terry, Travolta, is told by his producer Sam to obtain a more realistic-sounding scream and better wind effect. The scream is beyond pathetic, the original one that they have of yeah, the yeah. lady getting stabbed and going, ah, ma. No. 
and he has to get wind effects as well. This all came about when uh, Brian De Palma was in post. I know this story on yeah. uh, Dress to Kill mm. when he was working on the sound, and then he realized, like, wait a minute, like we need to get better sound, and he started to get interested, thinking about the concept of like um, someone going out and actually recording sound. I have watched Dress to Kill. Uh, since we watched it yeah. on the podcast, it's uh, excellent. Do you remember what we paired it with? Joanna uh, Man. Joanna Man. <laughs> that is Joanna Man. <laughs> that's a different. That's a different time. It was a different time back then. The we, week my, we could uh, do my child was better. born. Yeah, we see. That's fine. That's like two years ago. We can. Child we we were able to do that back then. It was. It was a different time. I need to start training her in her podcast Jedi powers. Sure, she's ever to take over. While recording potential sound effects at a local park, he sees a car careen off the road. And plunge into a nearby creek. The male driver is killed, but Jack manages to rescue a young woman named Sally Bedina, Nancy Allen, and accompanies her to a hospital. If I can just say, the shooting of that rescue is so daring and so effective, I think it really, really works. No? Yeah, I thought it was was fine. I I I thought that was really well done. I preferred the shooting of John Travolta with like the mic moving it up and down and focusing on the individual things. Yeah, 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 but I, 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 that's what I mean. It's like even that more than the actual like him jumping into the water, and yeah. then of course you see like you see um, Franz running away, Dennis Franz running away. But like I suppose that's one of the things I like so much. By the way, Sipowitz could have definitely made it in a John Cassavetes movie. Yeah, he was a big. He's got uh, a big. He's face. a big, very greasy and dirty. But no, I, I, I like. I just mean, I, I even think the beginning of the set piece is where he's. Time and those things. And then it culminates with him diving in. I think the whole film is stitched together set pieces. And I think each one kind of aims to and succeeds at outdoing the previous. Fair play. At the hospital, a detective interviews Jack about the accident. And Jack asks Sally out for a drink. That's mad. Nineteen, I know it's 1981, but 1970s. I, this lady is like in a hospital bed, like doped out of her brains. And he's like, ah, so you're going to come out with a drink for me. I'm definitely not gay, I promise. <laughs> yeah, like the fact that that was an acceptable hey, strip yo. movie is very emblematic of the times, let's right. say. She was in no fit state to be doing to anything. To consent. Like that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He learns that Governor George McRyan was driving the car and that Sally was his escort. Associates of McRyan attempt to conceal Sally's involvement and persuade Jack to smuggle her out to the hospital. Which is nice. That's good. Just which tell is him, when like, he evolves into a Brian De Palma cipher and starts uh, rapidly pursuing the conspiracy. Yeah. Well, we when we eventually get to the part where it turns out that he was like bringing down police corruption. Oh, I love that. The Freddy, story. Freddy Corso. Uh, Jack listens to the audio tape he recorded of the accident, wherein he distinctly hears a gunshot just before the tire blowout. Blowout, that's like the name of the film. Oh, yeah. That caused the accident, suspecting that the accident was actually an assassination. What? I'm outraged. It's a mad plan to have that. So is John Lithgow hiding in a bush or is it like automatic, the firing of the gun? I believe John Lithgow's hiding in a bush. And he just shoots the wheel. Because we hear him playing with his his wristwatch well, the wire, thing, razor wire. Yeah, exactly. Well, the thing is, I know this was um, a lovely uh, cross-blending of um, my own personal interests and uh, Brian De Palma's. You know who the John Lithgow character is based on? One of the guys from Watergate. That's right, Joseph Gordon-Liddy. Liddy. Now, this guy is well worth a Wikipedia search. Yeah, I've definitely looked at He's him before. He's an extremely interesting character. Like legitimately 
kind of into Nazis is, is a obviously part of his uh, backdrop, but also just the schemes he would come up with um, during Watergate. He was one of the people, like one of his schemes was they would um, plant a toxin in the areas where Fidel Castro would go for his walks in Cuba because Everyone it was known was going that after he would Fidel. He's polish nice his, he was no listen to this. It was known that he would polish his own boots and the toxin would cause the hair from his beard to fall out. They did all that shit though, the mad things of like, you know, the cigar that was gonna blow yeah, up. Yeah, and yeah, all yeah. That's but that, that's all Liddy stuff. That's that's yeah. all what he was into, which is why when I like despite the fact that I tried not to give anything away when Lithgow per, um in this movie um Burke, I think his name is, Yeah, proposes his solution <laughs> for the problem. I texted you, I said, we need a, well, well, a, a Lithgow solution to all problems. I have a question about that, but we'll get to it when we get Go to on. it about it. So oh. anyway, Jack learns from a news report that seemingly coincidentally, Manny Carp, Dennis Franz, Andy Sipowitz off of NYPD Blue, mm-hmm. was also in the park that night and filmed the accident with a motion picture camera. When Carp sells stills from his film to a local tabloid, Jack splices them together into a crude movie, syncs them with his recorded audio, and finds a visible flash and smoke from the fired gun back into the left. Yeah, that's, I mean, this again, this is like a real film about filmmaking. He's like literally making a film. Like yeah. a little flip book that he's 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 animating these images, these still images into a film and then syncing it with audio. He made a film. He made his uh, his own little assassination film. I think it's great. It's a Pruder tape style thing. Though initially reluctant, Sally eventually agrees to cooperate with Jack to privately investigate the incident. When they go out for a drink, Jack reveals how he left his prior career as part of a government commission to root out police oh, corruption. I must, um... After a wiretap operation he was involved in led to the death of an undercover cop named Freddy Quasso. I thought those flashback scenes were well done. I enjoyed Freddy those. Freddy Quasso. But, uh, not, I mean, it's a plot mover, fair enough. But just how dumb the Nancy Allen character is in just allowing herself to, or to be delayed away from her train just to be charmed by, you know, hot-ass, not-gay John Travolta. Definitely not gay. Is, um, not gay. Yeah, it's a little bit silly for the plot, I felt. So all that, that those flashback scenes were all taken... That's, the, that's his footloose moment as well. All those flashback scenes were taken from Brian De Palma's work on a script for Prince of the City. What? Which ended up getting made by Sidney Lumet. With John Travolta in it? No, not with John Travolta. It was with um, Treat Williams. So like... But so okay, like the so limey. no, no, no. I just uh, what I mean is like he'd originally worked on a script for Prince of the City because it was ah, a book from script, like seventy eight. No, films. no, not the film. So he'd worked on the script for Prince of the City, but then he got he lost it and it ended up going to Sidney Lumet, and then Sidney Lumet basically got kicked off of Scarface and got replaced by Brian De Palma. So it was like uh, fuck you. What goes around is fuck all around. You, Lumet. Do they have bad blood? That you can pick up on in the in the yeah film? he's not a fan of Sidney Lumet but really Sydney, but you know I'm Sydney, a fan of Sydney, Sydney Lumet's dead so fair play does he express that any further or is just not a fan of being fucked out of yeah he doesn't bag? like he's he's old school he's like he's the type of person he's like if my screenwriter if my screenwriter gets fired I quit the project if you fuck me off of a project then I'm gonna yeah hate he's you gonna forever take it personally basically yeah respect. 
Unbeknownst to Jack, Sally and Carp were both frequent blackmail co-conspirators who were hired as part of a larger plot against presidential hopeful McRyan, a rival candidate, had hired Burke, John Lithgow, to hook McRyan with a prostitute, take unflattering pictures of the pair and publish them so that McRyan would drop out of the race. When Brian De Palma talks about this, he's, he's all very much of like, what he likes about these type of films is that you can sh- you show things, you reveal things to the audience at the same time as you reveal them to the character. Mm. Or you can also reveal other things to the audience that are not revealed to the main character. He's very much into that. But especially the like revelations that you, way of Yeah, yeah. He's got he gets his Hitchcock out. <laughs> However, Burke decided to alter the plan by blowing out the tire of McGrine's car with a gunshot, thereby causing the accident. When the authorities arrived to find McGrime with Sally, Carp would be there to film it all. I have to say Wait. So does that mean that Burke is not expecting them to go plunging into the creek? He doesn't think they're going to... He wasn't expecting no, them to die. he expects that. He wants them both to die. Right. It's like like with everything in a Hitchcock movie, it's like you, there's plot holes all over the place. Like people would have picked up on the gunshot before he went in and changed the tire, for example. You know? The lit go stuff I enjoy just because... Okay, compared to something like we're used to, we've both seen probably too many times and for the rest of our lives, some, a show like The Wire, where people use beepers. All the pieces matter. To be um, subtle and say barely anything, even when they're on the phone. But in this, in this one, there's a point where John Lithgow goes, um, yes, I'm decided I'm going to... Uh, uh, cover it up by killing a bunch of prostitutes. It's 1981, <laughs> to be fair. You can just be on the in a phone box saying, like, yes, I'm going to do crimes for you. That's what I thought was quite funny and elaborate and almost like what Brian De Palma would do if he was uh, forced into a situation of being a serial killer based on his previous work at this point. It's like, Lithgow's solution is to become a serial killer to cover up the middle murder. So that's my question. This is my question, because this is what comes up next in this plot synopsis, is after botching the cover-up of Sally by murdering a lookalike, is that first murder unintentional, or is that already? Is he already? Because according to this synopsis, to um, par- this this synopsis is suggesting that like he fucked up and accidentally murdered someone who looked like Nancy Allen. The lady who he murders does look like Nancy Allen. That is true. Uh, it was unclear to me at the time, and because it's unclear in the film, I think I'm thinking probably the G. Gordon Liddy character was doing what he was doing. Oh wait, because wh- when he, he does, when he commits that murder, he looks up and he sees the Liberty Bell thing, and that's when he turns her over and takes out his little knife and yep. is like, "I'm going to carve the Liberty Bell into her." And so he all, must have realized he fucked up. Do you know there's a hilarious shot in, and I know it's just there just to give away what's about to happen, but where he picks his murder weapon as like a pick out of a fish stand. Yeah, yeah, the, the, <laughs> which is so funny. It's a nice shot. It's like, like, would you not? Just bring your own murder weapon, but of course, you know, we're not in the real world here. Yeah, yeah. He just makes it up as he goes along. Burke murders two more lookalike women with piano wire and attributes the deaths to a serial killer, the Liberty Bell Strangler, so that he can cover up the cover-up when Sally is successfully murdered. He's gone full fucking Jimmy Mm. McNulty. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of that completely. To help Jack investigate McGrine's murder, Sally steals Carp's film, which, when synced up to Jack's audio, clearly reveals the gunshot that precipitated the blowout. Nevertheless, nobody believes Jack's story, and a seemingly widespread conspiracy immediately silences his every move. 
Local talk show host Frank Donahue, Kurt May, asks to interview Jack on air and release his tapes, to which Jack eventually agrees. Burke follows the development through a tap on Jack's phone, calls Sally as Donahue, and asks her to meet him at a train station with the tapes. Yeah, this is annoying. That Not that Nancy uh, Allen would agree to this, because she's kind of been established as a bit of a dummy, but that John Travolta would go along with this, who has started getting paranoid. This is a gap in his paranoia, in my opinion. When Sally tells Jack about Donahue's call, he becomes suspicious. He copies the audio tapes, but is unable to copy the film before Sally's meeting. We, uh, I he, never even noticed. I didn't notice that. He should just say, no, I'm going to stick to my original appointment that I had with the guy. Yeah, Thank you very yeah, much. yeah. Well, you know, it's 1980, 1981. Shadowing a wired Sally from a distance, Jack is alarmed to see that his supposed contact is actually Burke. Immediately realizing that she's in danger, Jack attempts to warn her, but Sally and Burke slip out of range and into a parade. So this is great, all this stuff. Like, this Incredible. is insane. They also lost, they filmed a bunch of stuff that got stolen out, and it was in a van, and they had to reshoot a bit. It cost like about 750000 or something. To reshoot a sequence. They, some of this sequence, this whole, which, where mean, they this shut is a pretty down expensive the state center. Yeah. That part where uh, like so there's only these few seconds where they cut up to the air and it's almost like a gift to people who know how movies are made because you're going jesus christ yeah the, the money. effort they made to make the, to get these shots like incredible jack manically dashes across the city attempting to head them off and rescue sally but crashes his jeep mm, definitely straight and is knocked out by the time he awakens burke has gotten the film from sally and thrown it into a river <laughs> it just sounds funny to me like he just threw it in the river he then takes Sally to a rooftop and attacks her still listening in on his earpiece Jack spots them he startles Burke and manages to stab him to death with his own weapon uh, but I don't know why that's funny to me but it's too late he's already strangled Sally a devastated Jack takes her lifeless body in his arms. You've already alluded to this. The firework sequence. Burke's death, combined with the loss of the film, ties up the last loose end. Jack's audio tapes alone are insufficient to prove a gunshot, and the cover-up is successful. Jack begins repeatedly listening to the recording of Sally's voice, becoming obsessed with it. In the last scene, he's back in the editing room and has used Sally's death scream in the slasher film. Ecstatic that Jack found the perfect scream, Sam plays it multiple times, forcing Jack to cover his ears. I can't tell. It's a good scream. It's a good scream. I can't tell is that supposed to be a gag at the end, but I found it funny. I think so. I hope so. John Travolta in this reminds me a bit of uh, enemy of the show, John Spillane. Why? I don't know. He's got a similar sort of energy. Gate. <laughs> gate. He's <laughs> <laughs> very similar gate. Indeed. No, I think he's got something he's got something uh similar in the facial ah, zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um There's something similar in there. So the plot is what uh, slightly fell short for you on this one. Yeah, I just think I want more from my thriller plot wise. Like uh I mean even something like Clute I think had a stronger plot. This is a better film, I would say. It is. Far better made, but I think, uh, you know, Clute has a stronger mystery. Yeah, I'm... I prefer the conversations plot than this. I'll... I suppose I'll get into uh, what I think about plot when we're talking about Chinese bookie a little bit. But I suppose my argument with the plot on this is it's it's so bloody convoluted 
that it does not matter. I guess, but I just, I want more Were you surprised mystery. that Nancy Allen died? No, but I think I already maybe knew this plot. See, I didn't know it was Nancy Allen going to die, and that did kind of carry me through to the end, because bizarrely enough, by the end of it, despite the fact that it's not a female character you could get away with writing uh, these days, I was desperate for Nancy Allen not to die. Because I did feel like, for all the, how would I put it, pantomime acting that probably Brian De Palma encourages, or encouraged at least, by that point in the film, you've seen, you you know what her life is with Sipowitz, and you see Sipowitz attempt to rape her, actually. And Does she kill him? Is he dead when she hits him over the head with the bottle? No, I doubt it. We just don't see anything else from him. That's him done. Uh, you can't get, you this can't die from really being bottled. Can you? But he can. But anyway, no, my, my point being is, like, by that point, me personally, I just see her as sort of vulnerable and a victim of circumstance and she's had a horrible life yeah she's having a rough time certainly so but like and john travolta does really want to save her and it's not in a love story way he doesn't want to marry her or anything no he like doesn't that. he doesn't want anything to he doesn't want to hang out with her he doesn't no he doesn't want to hang out with her that which he's is got like, his eyes somewhere else you know i mean <laughs> uh no but i mean that's an interesting mover for the plot in my opinion He's not like sexually or romantically yeah, interested in, in her. He That's just wants true. her he to live. He doesn't want her to die. Yeah, because he doesn't want to lose her the same way that he lost that uh, the undercover guy, Freddie Corso. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. But there's also a bit of affection there. Sure, but not romantic. No, 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 not at all. Because he, he's, he's seen her. He's like, Ugh, you fucked the old like politician guy. Yeah. There is something of that in it, in his performance. Yeah, he yeah. saw that photo of her with the but politician guy, humane. and he's like, you were in that photo? I didn't even see you. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't even see you, Nancy Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was a huge fan of this. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm going to watch it again. Maybe I would prefer it on a rewatch. I'm just not going to rewatch it. I thought it was so too much many fun. Other things. Put it on the shelf beside um, my um, Dress to Kill. Which, Which again, I wasn't again. such a huge fan of Dress no, to Kill. No, 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 I was a bigger fan of Dress to Kill as well, I remember. That's, you know, says more about you than it does about me. Mm. I actually respect trans rights, but, you know, you do you. So does Brian De Palma do your research. Anyway, tell me a little bit about these fuckers. Well, Jonathan Travolta Stein is, uh, he was a Jewish actor. Oh, no, okay. Well, first up in the cast is Mr. John Travolta. He grew up in an Irish-American neighborhood and said that his household was predominantly Irish in culture. Not actually Italian, as you might have thought. He was raised Catholic, but later converted to Scientology in 1975 at age 21. Early adopter. He converted after being given the book Dianetics while filming The Devil's Reign in Durango, Mexico. In his 2010 book Showgirls, Teen Wolves and Astro Zombies, Australian film reviewer Michael Adams called The Devil's Reign the ultimate cult movie. It's about a cult, has a cult following, was devised with input from a cult leader, Anton LaVey, and saw a future superstar indoctrinated into a cult he'd help popularize. I mean, that's a good, pretty good point. Cult. Yeah, yeah he said cult, cult a lot there. He with, said cult. With good reason. Travolta had a hit single titled Let Her In. Uh, he obviously got his pronouns mixed up. Peaking at number 10 <laughs> on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in July 1976. I looked on Spotify. He's got a few albums. Yeah, I know that. Have you listened to any of them? No, are there? No, I haven't listened to any of them. I mean, he's not getting into my algorithm. 
<laughs> the algorithm of the night. In the late 70s, two of his most noted screen roles were Tony Monero in Saturday Night Fever, 1977, and Classic. Danny Zuko in Greece. Classic. 1978. The films were among the most commercially successful pictures of the decade and catapulted Travolta to international stardom. Saturday Night Fever earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, making him at age 24 one of the youngest performers ever nominated for the Best Actor Oscar. No. He suffered a career downturn in the 80s. During that decade, Travolta was offered but declined lead roles in what would become box office hits, including American Gigolo and An Officer and a Gentleman, both of which went to Richard Gere, as well as Splash, which went to Tom Hanks. The, the castings that actually worked out were all better in that case. Right, so it yeah. was not until he played against type as Vincent Vega and Quentin Tarantino's hit Pulp Fiction Hell in yeah. 1994 with Samuel Jackson, for which he received an Academy Award nomination that his career was revived. Travolta was in a relationship with actress Diana Hyland, whom he met while filming The Boy in the Plastic Bubble in 1976, where she played his mother. She had a, a good few years on him. They remained together until Highland's death from breast cancer on oh, March yeah, 27th, story, yeah. 1977. In 1980, Travolta dated French actress Catherine Deneuve. That doesn't seem plausible. Why? Just don't think she'd be up for that. Him being gay and all. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that would have been a stumbling You're block. very sure that John Travolta is gay. I'm not. I don't think that at all, actually, because he's been married to women. So I don't know what you're talking so about. So is Elton John. And uh, Your point being, on July 12, 2020, Travolta's wife, Kelly Preston, died at the age of 57, two years after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. It's, he's had a brutal two time. Two for two. He's had a brutal old time. Yeah. On the plus side, a keen pilot, Travolta is rated to 737, 707, and 747 planes. Yeah, yeah, he's got runways in his backyard and hangars and stuff. I bet what's in them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he's had enough big hits to royalty the fuck out of it forever, right? Yeah, I think um, I quite like John Travolta and a lot of things, even bad things. Things that are not that good. What are you talking about? The Taking a Pelham 123 remake. I don't like that. I, I, I don't know. Do I have Swordfish, the of, baddie in Swordfish. I like him in Swordfish. He had a giant cup in the outtake from that where there's there's a, you find on like YouTube. He had a big willy. No, no, he just, he's drinking coffee and he did like a, like a joke take and he's just in the middle of the scene and he takes out like a fucking massive cup and drinks from it. Uh, it's pretty funny, actually. That he's is just, funny. Like, that he's does just sound messing funny. around. No way. Even with it taking a pedal one, two, three, he he isn't the problem I have with that movie. I like him in Face Off. I like him in Broken Arrow, for example. Oh yeah, I think he Christian did very Slater. good villain. Yeah. Never watched Phenomenon. I saw Phenomenon. It was pretty good with Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, I liked it. It's fine. It's when an alien day. force gives him powers or something. Yeah, but spoilers. It turns out he actually has uh, a brain tumor. All right. I think. Pretty sure he dies at the end. That script would not get made nowadays. Yeah. No, it would be breast cancer. Anyway. <laughs> what up next? Nancy Allen, not a huge fan, but she seems like a very nice lady. I'll give her that. Allen's first major film was as Nancy, Jack Nicholson's nervous date in The Last Detail, directed by Hal Ashby. This inspired her to move to Los Angeles to continue her acting career. Initially, Allen struggled to find acting jobs and was told by an agent that being 25 years old, it was over for her, probably a few years before that. However, in November 1975, she auditioned for the role of the spoiled and popular mean girl 
Christine Hargensen and director Brian De Palma's horror film Carrie. She's opposite great in Sissy that. Spacek, Amy Irving, and uh, John Travolta as the title character's chief nemesis. After a protracted casting process in which Alan was nearly recast at the instruction of producers, she was officially given the role. She was cast in uh, Blowout because Travolta and Brian De Palma had been talking about another film and then this small script idea was offered to John Travolta and he went like, okay, that sounds cool. It all got rewritten. And then he said, I want Nancy Allen to play the lady part. Originally, the the John Travolta role was going to be someone like James Woods. It was going to be someone a bit dirtier, a bit bit more, a bit more worldly wise, street wise. And the Nancy Allen character was going to be like a sort of old prostitute. Like a bit more haggard, a bit more, a bit more down on her luck, a, a bit more cynical. It's almost like in the recasting of those roles, Brian De Palma figured out who he actually was as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's not this. It's not the, the cynical, options. cynical. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The clean options to tell dirty stories. That's what Brian yeah. De Palma likes. Next up is John Lithgow or Lithgow. Lithgow yeah. graduated from Harvard in 1967 with an AB magna cum laude. And was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. He's a Har- he's he's a he's a Harvard grad. He's a Harvard boy. What did he study? I don't know. Come magna come. <laughs> he did magna come louder. <laughs> Can't believe he had the same uh, magna atter as my father. Yeah. After he graduated, Lithgow won a Fulbright scholarship to study at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. He's super intelligent, and he did acting in London, and he was a Fulbright scholar. Were you a former Fulbright scholar? Some people just love acting. Yeah. This is actually this if the theme of this show were to be named this particular episode, it would be just people who love acting. Lithgow is like but he's one of those he should be like running the country types. He should that be in like a I don't know, he went to Harvard and he's a Fulbright scholar. I think he should be in some like evil fucking I mean cabal of just baddies. He should be doing bad stuff. But he seems very fun and like a nice guy. I'd imagine a lot of people that smart are. I don't know about that. On the show Finding Your Roots, Lithgow discovered that he is a descendant of eight Mayflower passengers, including colonial governor William Bradford. So incest, basically. That, or he's like... Super pure. Yeah, a Puritan. He's one of the first he is Americans. A if you're a descendant of eight Puritans... The original Puritans, you are a Puritan. Yeah, I would describe him as a Native American. He is a Native American. (laughs) This is the truth. Without a doubt. I am a real American. He is a Native American. Someone give him a casino. That's what I say. For the rights of every man, yes. Uh, He was nominated. He got, well, he got two uh, Best Supporting Actor nominations. Care to guess what they might be? I think you've mentioned it. Well, I think we've mentioned both of these at some point, but I feel like you've mentioned one of them specifically. Maybe not. Obsession? No, that was 1976, uh, a Brian De Palma film, but no. I couldn't guess further than that. One was 1983, John Irving novel, I believe, adaptation. World According to Garb? Correct. Who does he play? Stephen Garb. Oh, the father, really? No, I don't know. No idea. I haven't seen it. That's the one. Who's in World According to Garb? Robin Williams. Robin Williams, yeah. Robbie Williams, off of Take That. 1984, not the novel, but 1984, The Year. He was also nominated. Two in a I row. don't know. Fuck off and leave me alone. Terms of Endearment. Oh, I've only read the book of that. I've never seen it. Oh, I've only read the book. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I don't like films. 
<laughs> Fuck <up. laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Mike's films more than you, you dick. <laughs> I know, I couldn't help it. But I have a, just, I have a book said, about films in that bag. Oh, dear God. Okay, <laughs> but, fine. I, but ter- the book of Terms of Endearment is very good. I've only read the serialized comic. Dennis Franz, finally. This is the last one, Dennis Franz. Real name, Dennis Franz Schlachter. Sipowitz. Well, you can call him that. His middle name was from his father, Franz Ferdinand Schlachter. It's a great name. His dad was called Franz Ferdinand. Named after the Archduke. (laughs) No, named after the band. The the Scottish band, band. yeah. Which is weird, because it was a long time before that. Uh, But strangely, after the Archduke, so I don't know. He's a grotesque individual, isn't he? He's a real uh, Chicago. He's a Chicago guy. I'm from fucking Chicago. He's all that. Hey, Nancy Ellen, come here. I'm going to rape you. That's essentially, that was all subtext, but yes. After graduating from college, Franz was drafted into the United States Army. He served 11 months with the 82nd Airborne Division and the 101st Airborne in in Vietnam. So I think we should put some some respect on his name. Yeah, fair enough. He served served his time. But all the sorts of movies we watch end up with guys who had served in Vietnam. I'm pretty sure everyone in the next movie served in Vietnam. I'll tell you one person from this film who did not serve in Vietnam. Brian De Palma. And the reason for that was he, he went... He got on a plane to London and lit up a joint. No, no. But he went uh, when he had to go for his interview thing and his whatever like checkup. He said, I, um, I think he might have said he was gay. He said he was mentally ill. He like stayed up the night before and did whatever, like drank so that his vision was all fucked up. He did literally everything so that he would get turned down. Fair play? Yeah. I would have been. I mean, doing the same. Yeah, I would have been a draft dodger. Yeah, but I still love I, the the reference I was making there. Do you know it? it uh, a Norm Macdonald joke he would frequently make about Bill Clinton. What was that? Uh, he would just say something like, um, "Because what Bill Clinton did during Vietnam was go to Oxford and." Oh uh, yeah! Oh right! Yeah yeah! Like yeah, flying yeah. to England. Yeah. So um, it would always like whenever um, Bill Clinton would be up against somebody who did time in Vietnam. Lord, uh, Lord, I was about to say Lord MacDonald. I might as well. <laughs> Jesus. Lord. Norm MacDonald would say, um, comment on the person's military record and then uh, say, uh, when uh, President Clinton was asked for back comment on this particular military record with reference to his own in particular, well, he got on a plane to London and lit up a big <laughs> fat joint. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I read uh, Clinton's... Autobiography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did too back in the day. Yeah, ages life, ago, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just remember him like talking about that. He made no mention of Vietnam. <laughs> it yeah, was all like I went very, to London because it was a like very an offer. Uh, autobiography. Respect. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And then I came on her dress and stuck a cigar in her pussy. I don't remember that scene. No, no, that, I don't remember it either. What else you got? No, that's everyone. Those are the people that count. Everyone else is just fucking. They're just in the background. So the connection between the two movies was a blowout. People got blown out. I know you loved The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing. It's incredible. I thought it was great. I much preferred it. No, I don't want to shit on Blowout, but I loved Killing of a Chinese Bookie. The thing is, I loved Blowout so much that it made The Killing of a Chinese Bookie even better. Mm. If you get my meaning. Right. Because I just didn't think... just having fun. I just didn't think I'd get there again. I watched these... So one night after the other. Yeah. And so like The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is the second Cassavetes film I've seen. 
I'll get into John Cassavetes in a second. Um, the, fir- uh, the first being what's most often called his masterpiece, uh, A Woman Under the Influence. I've seen that twice. And the first time, I was blown away. It's tense in a way that I think only really good domestic dramas, like the kind of thing Mike Lee deals in, can manage. Like, it's a different kind of tension. The performances are just so fucking towering, they transport you. But when I rewatched it recently, I immediately sensed that it's most kind of potent if you just see it the first time, basically. Anyway, I would say... I run, like there's hardly any plot in a woman under the influence. Do you know anything about it? Uh, it's about a lady who's under the influence. Totally, uh, played by Gina Rollins. It's like two and a half hours long. Not very much happens in it. And let me tell you that, like for real, the first time I watched it, I was just transfixed. Like it was such an experience for me. I still kind of remember how I felt by it. I felt about it, rather. And then um, I watched it again recently, and it dragged a little for me, and I think a lot of it was because I remembered how it ended. And it's ironic because there's not much plot to that. And there's more plot to this. The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is actually quite a plotty movie, if you think about it. I think we should probably establish which version we watched, because there are two cuts. I watched the um, later cut. I watched the, the shorter. Ni- I watched the 1976 Full Fat Milk. 138 130 something minutes and the one you watched Ben Gazzara didn't like yeah you watched the 108 minute that's cut. correct yeah yeah and I loved the the uh, that's good that we've seen both versions that's yeah this great. would be interesting and that was completely because we're both exactly on the same page yeah yeah I would what like to movie. watch the shorter cut because it's not just a shorter cut he moved things around yeah, that's right yeah he yeah. added scenes like I think there's something to be said for watching both I will eventually watch the 108 I, if, I I'll just say on YouTube you can find the 1976 cut it's on there I'll put maybe I'll put a link in the show notes ironically I would say because Chinese bookie is more plotty. It would stand more rewatches. But that I think that might just be because you only have one inner life to deal with rather than the three or four that are at the center of a woman under the influence. Which again, I must reiterate, the reason I'm talking about this is because it's kind of considered his masterpiece. But I prefer The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And kind of the... I, I don't like. I suppose the reason why is I just think there's... I've you often like heard it said... Chinese sc- people die. That's it, yeah. I've often heard it said of screenwriter, like when people talk about movies in an artistic, analytical way, that there's a big difference between story and plot. And this is one movie where I think you the, the plot happens. We'll talk about the plot in a second. But the story is Cassavetes' story. Right. It's uh, the character represents him. But like, and... Uh, and his I, filmmaking. I did read that on... Actually, both of these films are about filmmaking. Then, yeah, yeah, totally. Argue, yeah. To- I totally, this is why it's, there's there such a go. perfect matchup. And I did spot that before, you know, I watched I, I watched the interview with Ben Gazzara where he backs up that point. Mm. But as you're watching this, particularly during the last scene where Ben Gazzara gives his speech, you feel like somebody's telling you the meaning of the movie. But anyway. I just want to say, Ben Gazzara, fucking hell. Yeah. He was he was a man. He was a dude, and we th- we talked about him before. We talked about him in the last yeah yeah, and the last like double episode. But like this now, we've seen him in a completely different. He's like incredible. It's a different life. human, and he's still amazing. So good. Like he's pr- he's got movie star good looks, but the weirdness of a psychopath. That yeah, he's got. He's, never have been he's a smirks. Man. He's smiling the entire time, no matter what's happening. 
like Bucky doesn't so good. doesn't lean so totally on performances for its engine, and I think it's it's all the better for it. I think it's a better film for it. I've already mentioned, but I also think it's kind of a better illustration of what Cassavetes was all about, which is story through performance. Like in the case of Bucky, you've the plot. I mentioned this, which will we will get through in just a second. But then you've just got the story of what's going on with a man who gives himself completely to show business ostensibly and makes sacrifices and kind of loses everything along the way. But at the end says, guys, the show's got to fucking go on because that's the only thing that's important. A lot of the stuff that got cut for your short to cut was uh, club scenes. So it was like the lady stripping. Hmm. I didn't. But have, also, I didn't have any problem with those scenes. But I'll tell you they what: were fine. the lady stripping. That's one thing that's so important in this movie is this guy isn't just running a strip show. Is like he's putting on so like weird. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's like so, Mister Sophistication. Mister Sophistication, which is that is, what I, that is what I call myself. Yes. <laughs> Did you know he was? Have you looked up this cast? Uh, a little bit. I know that guy. Like I hope he to was. Surprise he you he was like the first facts, to die. I know I that. Will. No, no, you might well do. I, I mostly focused on uh, Timothy Carey. I went deep on. T- I went deep on TC. On all TC, because uh, that's the thing is like when he shows up. Because me and you have gotten. This is how I know you and I have taste, Andy. Because so many directors have gone nuts for this guy over the years. From the very He's first amazing. time we saw him in the killing, watching him for this podcast. Yeah, we're like, I remember, what the I, fuck I, I is that back, guy? All I about? listened back to that episode recently. We were both recently like, who the hell? Who is this guy? <laughs> That's so funny because now we've watched like at least three films, three, films, three of yeah. his films. Like, I consider him maybe my like favorite character actor ever. Oh, he's so. Like he's brilliant in this as yeah, well. Yeah, what about that scene just at the end when he's when he leaves, when he's like realizes he's like, I'm not gonna do the hit. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he just he leaves and he's like, Take care of my boy. <laughs> Bye. He just does this like weird smile. It's so fucking weird. It's like he's so wrong, but so right. Like it makes no sense whatsoever what he's doing. It's just like as is clear in this, first of all, we'll talk about it a little bit, um, when I have my fa- my um, cast facts, but like you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who has a significant role in this besides um, Rachel, who wasn't just mates with John Cassavetes forever. He always Yo, worked yeah, with they, the same, same people. people. Seymour Seymour Castle's great. Who plays Mort? He's and like so the good. thing is, oh, he's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, he's great. He, ju- he has the energy of he'll kill you. Yeah, he'll kill you with his hands. He's scary. And like he's got uh, the Tim Carey character as a weapon. Yeah. But he'll kill you. Make no yeah. mistake. And like, but they've all got such strong fucking faces. Yeah. They yeah, all yeah. just look like, like the sort of guys my farmer uncles were mates with. Like they just look like real people. Well, I mean, like Timothy Carey was probably, <laughs> Timothy Carey might have even have been in his 30s. <laughs> How old was, t- he might have. Oh my god! I wonder if he was even forty at this point. Fuck what? Hell. No way! I know he looked awful, but like, I wonder how old he even was. Wait, I'm gonna find out actually. Do do. This is disturbing. Do do indeed. Right. Timothy Carey was born in 1929, so I was like, when was this film made? Seventy. Seventy six. Yeah, so he was like mid forties. <laughs> mid mid to late forties. Thank God. With yeah, cancer. I mean, he was brutal. <laughs> he died at sixty five. Oh, I feel bad for laughing now. He had six kids, though, enough genes to pass on, huh? 
Did he? I, I mean, I, the only one I know about is Romeo. Romeo, but I'll I'll Romeo. Get to I'm Romeo. looking forward to your Romeo stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly how Cassavetes shot, but I'd imagine it involved heavy rehearsal, improv, and setups galore, enough to have the luxury of de- deciding where to settle the shot. Like, he'll linger on characters not talking as dialogue goes on, or or simply, like, he'll. there's other ones where he'll just jump to a different scene and let the dialogue continue i mean i've read estimations of him as one of the most influential cinema directors of all time and i don't think that's actually overstating it because in terms of what like indie arty film means he had a a successful career as an actor Mm. but he was rosemary's baby and all that but a lot of we talked about him before because he was in the dirty dozen that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. the first time that we talked about him. I think. Like, I think, I think of his career now, particularly after Chinese Bookie, as almost reactionary. And I'm particularly talking about his interest in the kind of cast he was interested in. Cinema verite. It's like anti Hollywood. The kind of people yeah. he would cast. It's like these are real guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene in the end, which I'll get to, I'll talk about plot right now, where he says about Rachel's not here anymore. And I loved her, uh, Ben Gazzara's character. Mm-hmm. And it, like the the crowd is jeering Ben Gazzara, and you, like you, we don't see a, a crowd shot, which is a a cinema grammatical choice, yeah, to not show those guys and to just focus on the actors. And that final scene where Mr. Hospitality is saying, "I know I'm a <laughs> Mr. Hospitality, Mr. Sophisticated." Mr. Sorry, what I like Mr. Hospitality. That's <laughs> definitely Mr. not me. <laughs> no, no. That, that final scene where Mr. Sophistication is uh, like, is there going, I know I'm a bit of a freak or whatever, and that's why you have me here. And then one of the girls comes up and sets him on fire. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like the biggest fuck you, which is quite funny. Oi. I wonder if there's, I wonder what stuff we're going to come across that was only in, like, was only in my cut or was only in your cut. I've written out a, a one here, so we'll okay, see. Okay, okay, because this is, yeah, it's not going to be the same. So... Cosmo is a strip club owner with uh, some vices, but ultimately... Um, how does he, How does your film start? Because the one that I saw, he's gambling, and then he goes and he pays off a guy. No gambling at the start, just the payoff. Now I'm wondering if I just saw the payoff and I invented the gambling. I'm not sure. Yeah, so nothing is more important to him than his club and the cabaret-style act he showcases. Then one day... He pays off a debt uh, to the mob and takes his girls out to celebrate only to indebt himself further to the tune of $20,000. As a means to pay it back, he is asked to murder a Chinese bookie, which he does only to be told it was a setup. He learns that later and that nobody believed he could do it because the person he was asked to murder was basically the biggest player on the West Coast. The mobsters, one of them an all right guy, Big TC, try to have Flo, him... Flo, he's called. Flo, yeah. Like, Flo com- like, d- refuses to do the hit and kind of says, he's my friend. I've decided he's my friend now. And then they, the mobsters try to have him killed to escape risk, uh, retaliation themselves. But for, honestly, for cinema, ver- cinema Verite, that action sequence where Cosmo perseveres and manages to kill yeah, the mobsters great. is 
fucking the whole layout of that place of like him walking up the driveway and then there's like guys like chinese you're talking about a second the first action scene i'm talking about the second one but both action scenes are fantastic so so you're talking about the actual murdering yeah i'm talking are you talking about when they oh when he gets chased around yeah 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 yeah, yeah, inside the like parking garage place fantastic that is great there's like a real kind you understand the layout of the building and particularly in contrast to something like blowout where and I was a huge fan of Blood, but the tension is so obviously yeah, yeah, overplayed yeah. for good reasons. It's the you know they're following the Hitchcock playbook, but this is a case of like using real spaces and the action that's been built up to. Like normally, I would say things like this. It it's like action that's logical to the characters, but this is action that's lo- logical to the plot. And considering the sort of low lighting they shoot it in. It's difficult to convey, I would imagine, something like this. But nowadays, whatever, especially like whatever way they edit it, you know exactly what's going on. Nowadays, it would be shy. Like it you know, would not be clear at all. No, no, no. They wouldn't be able to do it. They, I, I, I imagine John Cassavetes did something in that action sequence, a craft that has kind of been lost. Yeah, I don't know how he did that. He must have shot it. Probably like actually, you walk through those rooms and those shots, and it's probably the actual building. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, wounded, he arrives. To uh, his girlfriend Rachel's house, her she's a dancer herself at the club, only to have her mother, who we've previously seen him have a good relationship with, ban him from their house for the violence he's brought there. And then Cosmo returns to the club and tells the dancers that basically the show must go on. And there's a lengthy speech about kind of the self-destructive side of performance art, I'd say, and the degradation of oneself for the escapism of others. Which Cosmo seems to see think is noble. Like he he will say, I I only like myself when I'm angry. I can only do what other people want me to do. Mm. But I'll do it because those people out there they need they have things in their lives to escape from. Which might seem like kind of a Jesus moment, but you just have to look into Casavetti's career to see like he was a lifelong alcoholic. Yeah, I mean, he died young. Yeah, he yeah, died in his it, 50s. like he was a bit of a martyr to his cause in the end. It's so funny thinking about like Cosmo and that show because he's putting on these little, like almost like little plays, little musicals mm. of the characters, and every single person is showing, take it off, take it off, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Which is that's that's what they're crying out for is like give us. This what is what we I want. meant when I said sure, I, sure, yeah, I heard like his career was this. reactionary. Like no, 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 not not just that particularly, just the the fact that. Like, he cast the people he cast, and he made the sort of stories he made. Like, A Woman on the Earth, uh, Under the Influence, I would recommend you watch it, just because I didn't enjoy it as much the second time. If you don't know, have you never experienced it? It's quite an experience. Well, this was my first of his films, and like, uh, like off the back of this, I'll watch anything. Husbands, what are, they, what are the other ones? Because he got not Mini and yeah, um, bases. Anyway, let me finish off the plot. Sure, sure. So then um, he start, the show starts while he's out the front after he's made his, his little speech to his actors and um, he notices that his wound is still bleeding from his jacket and then credits he's got, roll. He's got like red red paint yeah, yeah. coming he's out of his pocket. He's got 70s blood, to be fair yeah. now. And that's kind of the end. And I suppose it's not as grim as... One, like, it's not like a... Again, to revert to a De Palma reference, it's not a, exactly a Carlito's way... Um, last of the Mohicans. Well, maybe yeah, yeah. not quite the last. Yeah, it's not exactly that, but he's clearly, for the sake of what he considers to be his art, he's bleeding himself dry. And so clever. Uh, yeah, yeah. And lo and behold, uh, Cassavetes will die himself. 
But it's like, also, Cassavetes is just interested, clearly, in making movies in a different way. He, like, he wants, as I mentioned, to make a reaction to Hollywood with interesting faces. As I mentioned earlier as well, one entertaining thing, as you read about each cast member, is they were, most of them, best known for working with him regularly. Except for old Big TC, who is kind of the Don Cheadle of... um, Kubrick boy. Well, he'd been fired by so many. He was like... Of this podcast. His son Romeo suggests that like a lot of film directors who hired him almost wanted to fire him because it was like cool. It was was cool. It was like the thing to do was to hire and then fire Timothy Carey. Go on. I've only got... So we covered Ben Gazzara recently. Uh, Yeah, he seems like a nice... He's a cool guy, but... Yeah, yeah. I've got... um, I've got... Uh, some things about Seymour Cassell and uh, Azizi Johari. Aziz Ansari. Uh, but I would love to hear um, what more TC facts you have before we move on. So for people who don't know, Timothy uh, Carey, Andy and I got on to him. We watched um, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing and both of us had the immediate reaction. Who the hell is this guy? Uh, I think he might have been the one that got us into looking up cast members, actually, because we were both like, Ooh, what? how the fuck did, is this the guy? Did they get this his creature stories on are film? ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only person who's come close to is, um, uh, what's his name? Staden Hurling, is that his name? Hayden Sterling. Hayden Sterling. <laughs> Staden Hurling, Staden. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Staden that, that, was, that was not even an, an on-purpose mistake, but yeah, you know it's what I'm talking about. Um But yeah, old TC then cropped up again in Pats of Glory, so if you want to hear some of the stories we've previously told about him look up those episodes but andy has some fresh ones right now on the old yeah, tc some, but even to go back to some of the old stuff like the big thing on paths of glory was the, the fake kidnapping he got fired for a fake kidnapping yeah, right this did. was in germany he that that fake kidnapping lasted for like two weeks it's not just like an overnight thing it was two weeks the this this was in this and was did, like and people actually believed that it had happened they they were dragging the they they were dragging like the river and a lake. This was Munich, and the city, <laughs> the uh, city of Munich wanted to charge the film production like like hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. For no this. wonder he got fired. Yeah, that's why. So like, and the reason maybe he was just a nut job because that's he, a nuts thing to do. He was a psycho, but like in the best possible way. So like the reason that that happened was he felt like he was being overshadowed by some of the other guys on the film, like Kirk Douglas, like and Kirk Adolf, Douglas the Adolf, legacy Hollywood actor, Adolf Menjou, Monjou, who was like a the mustache man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like he just felt like he was like being overshadowed, and he wanted to raise his profile a bit. So Good God. TC. But he was still on good terms with Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick tried to get him in Spartacus. He called him up and Timothy Carey just, just left Kubrick on the phone and like refused to answer the call. He just couldn't be, couldn't be arsed and just went like, ah, I don't want to talk to him. And so didn't ended up not doing it. Uh, there's a lot of, I, I, so basically I listened to a couple of podcasts with uh, Romeo Carey uh, Are they worth listening to? Timothy Carey's son. Not the ones that Romeo Carey put up himself. I listened to another podcast featuring Timothy Carey. It was called Talk, Cinephilia, Talk Cinephilia to Me. So I listened to a two-part episode of Romeo Carey just talking about his dad. And he tells some mad, mad stories. It's definitely worth listening to. Uh, a lot of it was about the film that Timothy Carey directed, which was called uh, The World's Greatest Sinner. It's a 1962 yeah, yeah. film. Yeah, I've read a few stories about that. I, I got hold of that. It's quite hard to find. 
but you can find it online. It's only 82 minutes long. It was scored by Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa made fun of it on the Tonight Show, I think, or like one of those kind of late night shows. And so him and Timothy Carey fell out. Even Um, though they look quite alike. Timothy Carey was in a film called Change of Habit in 1969, which was Elvis Presley's last film. When he was fil- he was in a very small role in this film. So when he was on set on Change of Habit, Elvis Presley came up to him and went, are you Timothy Carey? <laughs> he said wow. yes, because he was like, man, I, I really love that uh, world's greatest sinner. He, apparently he was like a huge fan of that film. It seems like it might be made up. I don't think so. I believe that. I, I genuinely believe this. Okay, fair enough. But I so, and you. this was an, and you're less so, skeptical than me. This and something else about about Carey is you're more like, skeptical than me. Actually, is what I meant to yeah. say. There. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> something else about uh, Carey is that like Stanley Kubrick loved him, and apparently, like the whole time that that they were making films together, Stanley Kubrick would just be talking about Timothy Carey all the time. Well, how could you not be? But and and, and that was that, that's not coming from Romeo Carey. That's coming from like another film. No, but I've heard that about. I, I have just, heard like, that about Kubrick before. Time, everyone was just talking about Timothy Carey because he's he was like he was insane. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. was insane in terms of like he just. But Hollywood used to have an energy like that back then. That's the, the like that's he, one of the things I was referring to. He has he has this mad line in the film in this film where he says like. <sighs> Opium is the religion of the people. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where he fucks up the Marx quote. <laughs> he fucks quote. up the Marx quote, yeah. but like, I believe that he literally, I, I do believe that he said that because I've heard a bunch of quotes from him talking about money and stuff like that where he's, he says all this, like, just, just him randomly talking, saying like, money is money is the last refuge of man, of just like anyone who's into money is a, is, is a coward and a shite bag. He's he was big into that. What I, what I what I would say is is like, and that philosophy follows through. If you looked at his film career and the opportunities yeah. he had, for me, somebody like him and Steve McQueen are kind of on the same spectrum at different ends of it. Which is that they're one is a like a black British filmmaker. <laughs> well, they're both getting by on personal charisma alone. Yeah. No, I've heard other people like. Um, argue that Steve McQueen was more involved in his acting uh, than people would say. And it, it, like, there is an aspect of that for sure. He became more of a hippie, apparently, in like the early 70s. But at the same time, if you read, some of the, if you read anything about Steve McQueen's life, it was horrific. I believe he was sold for a case of beer and stuff. Like, it's mad what? stuff. Was when he was a kid or For what? real, yeah, yeah. Steve McQueen had a horrible upbringing. And didn't he, didn't he ultimately die because of like some of the racing suits that he he wore no that he re- that well, the, 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 there's no conclusion on this but he reckons it was because of um cleaning torpedo shells during the war damn but like on the wrong side and he and he never um like he would have never saw treatment or anything like that yeah, yeah, just yeah. he's a hard man hard ass laconic idea that he brought to his roles but like in the same way that's why it's like it's not that it's a shame so to speak but in terms of producing weird charismatic men there's nothing like a generation for a war war. there's going to be some great new actors coming soon exactly this is this is a high compliment for killing of a chinese bookie the value that timothy carey adds feels at home in killing of a chinese bookie like it's that weird yeah he's 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 in the right place and this is his second film with john cassavetes he was in uh mini and moscovitz 
Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay, okay. I didn't pick up on that in my uh, searches through the library. I got two facts that I liked. Do you want to hear them? Go. Okay. So Seymour Cassell plays Mort. Do you know my Seymour Cassell fact? No. Well, I got two kind of. I mean, first of all, in a similar way to John Cassavetes, he got adopted in later life by Wes Anderson. Oh, yeah, sure. He's in uh, yeah. Rushmore. But he also gave um, a man called Saul Hudson his nickname. What was that? Slash. No way. Slash How did that credits, happen? Uh, That's amazing. Because Slash was, was friends with Castle's son when he was growing up. And he says that Seymour Castle would call him Slash because he was always zipping because he was like homeless when he was a teenager. He's pissing much. on everything. And he was just uh, zipping around from place to place and he would call him Slash. Should have there called you go. Him Isn't Flash. that fucking some hot Yeah, that's pretty good. That's solid. But it's not as, I don't like it as much as my second one. Um, go. Which is about uh, Azizi Johari, who plays Rachel. Do you know this one? Uh, she was like a playmate and stuff. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, she the... was a playmate, but that's I not know, what I'm I don't know. I don't remember the thing. All right. So she shares a very particular honor with Big TC. She appears in a Stanley Kubrick movie. Uh, Pass the Glory? No way. Is it one that we've. <laughs> no. CC Joe Harry. Barry Lyndon. She's in Barry Lyndon. She looks Irish. She could be Irish. Gorgeous black breasts in Barry <laughs> Lyndon. I don't believe so. Um, Wait, let me think. What could it be? The Shining? It is The Shining. Is she in the bar in The Shining or something? No. Who's a black lady in The Shining? I you don't won't know. guess this. She's a ghost or something. No, no, no. She is the background art in Dick Halloran's room. What made her famous oh, okay. was she was in this poster with her <laughs> naked like with the gigantic Afro wig, which became very popular, um, like sold by the thousands, right. um, called Supernatural Dream. Respect. So that's it's not only is it. Dick Halloran has two copies of the poster in his hotel room. One behind the bed and one behind the TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is uh, Azizi Johari in, oof, I would say the best call it friendo film in a while. Did you read say. about the famous person who was on set and is visible in some of the yeah. club scenes? Yeah, That's it's right. Nice. I couldn't spot him. I, uh, um, I didn't. I haven't gone back to look. I read about it afterwards, but yeah, apparently he was... I read about it beforehand. He was having a, uh, so a gay old time. I was watching out for him. But at the same time, the film, you get so caught up in it. Yeah, I was like, I don't care about David Bowie yeah, at this point. There's other stuff going exactly, on. Sorry, exactly. David. It is a completely terrific film. Recommend anybody who um, listens enough to this podcast and is not just in it for the bands, which some people are, let's be fair. Track down Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I think Andy will concur. It's excellent. Like I said, it's on YouTube. I'll put the, the link up. I'll put it in the show notes. And But like it's, a, it's one of those ones that I would just say like, yes, watch it. Oh, I just remembered. We have to toss. You have a coin right there. But yes. uh, I'll tell you about my toss pick for next time. I guess this was in response to our uh, conversation on Ben Affleck's film Air because... I think both of us just have the one Affleck film that we've never seen, and it's the one that, in general, people don't want to see. And that's uh, Live By Night. Although I've heard a few people say it's fine, it just had a bit of studio meddling, and it's maybe not the best, the best, but Live By Night. That's my toss Mine pick. would be based on the fact that I was searching forever for the preferred version uh, of a certain film, which I'll name now, so I don't know why I'm being coy. Um... <laughs> And uh, I finally found it in a, a different blockbuster branch. So I'd like to watch it at some point. I'm talking about the original 1978 theatrical cut of Dawn of the Dead. Is it harder to find the theatrical cut? Is there like another cut that's 
if I win the Taspic or if not in your kitchen afterwards, I'll explain to you the differences. But it's it's a tough one to find. Thank you. Okay. So, got... What the fuck is that? Got the moon rising over a castle. Or 50. Moon castle, please. Seymour Moon Castle. The day belongs to Moon Castle. Woo! All right. So you well, were, might have won, Captain Obvious. I wanted to go a bit different. I was looking at the George Romero things, and I went, meh. So I went Korea. I was going to go train to Busan. Ah, wow. Good shout. Yeah. Good see, movie. I thought that would be like, you know, that's, that's out there a bit. It's a bit different. Okay, cool. But none of that. So Live By Night, based on a book by Dennis Lahan. So you're going to go with Die By Day. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, what Dennis Lehan says is his favorite movie. The Drop? No. What are the other ones? What else is left? No, no, no. His favorite movie. Not one directed... Or... Casablanca. No, 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 no. Mona Lisa. The Neil Jordan film from the 1980s with Bob Hoskins. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I was Which I've never seen. still seen thinking it? that you were just meaning it was like of something he'd films. written. Yeah. Uh, no, but I, it is familiar to me. All right, Neil so uh, shall we pack up and go take a shower? Yes, let's wash off. All I'm right. still trying to find the right scream. <laughs> Maybe you can help. 